0: Check out idealwine.com for more information. That's I D E A L W I N E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Ralph Kutl of Trussalon
1: 10th on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. How are you? Nice to see you. Likewise. It's a cool day today, but yeah.
0: So you're actually our first chef guest on the show. Uh, usually we do sommiers, wine directors, importers, retailers, writers. But you're a chef who also buys the wine for for his restaurant, which is something you don't see that much of anymore. Um, maybe we could talk about how you got started as a chef. You were in Switzerland?
1: Yeah. Grew up in Switzerland. Uh my dad was a game warden, mom was a homemaker, and always liked cooking, always been around food, always been around farmers. And then when I was 15, 15 and a half, I started an apprenticeship uh, about 30 miles, 40 miles away from home, in the Lake of Zurich. Um, did that for three, four years, worked in several places in Switzerland, Lausanne, uh, Arosa, Zurich. Uh, then came to the United States in a tender age of 24.
0: So you, your dad used to buy a little wine for the house? Uh,
1: yes. Uh, we always had a flagon, 50-liter flagon of uh, what I suspect was Merlot at home from the Ticino, uh, Italian-speaking part of Switzerland.
0: Oh, okay. All the way down at the
1: bottom. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the big semi will come by every few months, drop one of those off and carry off the empty one. It was my job to siphon off did uh, the, the red wine into clean bottles, then cook the corks, hammer them in, and bring the bottles down into the cellar. Uh, we always had wine around, or beer. And or, this was yeah. like
0: when you were fifteen, and
1: you're... well, much younger uh, when I was eight, eight to fifteen, and then they kept on doing it. But yeah, uh, lots of wine around.
0: So you were kind of like cleaning the bottles and taking the corks out and reusing the corks and kind of a homegrown style.
1: Yes, uh, with one of those fangled uh, Italian corkscrews with the two prongs. And you actually use those so you don't destroy the cork and you don't dig a hole in it. So you can reuse the corks and you boil the corks for a half an hour so they're nice and soft. Since we didn't have a cork press, um, then you pop them back into the bottle.
0: And you ended up going as an
1: apprentice. And Yeah, the- that's something that you do unless you choose an academic career. Uh, you start the apprenticeship around 15, 16 years old, which I did for three years. And it was quite fun. Um, the first time away from home, I grew up, like I said, quite bucolic. Uh, surroundings in the middle of nowhere in Switzerland in the hills, lots of cows. Um, then being away the first time was quite exciting. know, 15, you're still a kid and you run around with other apprentices and do mischief and Yeah, we had a good time. We had a good time.
0: And you started butchering and that kind
1: of stuff That's all part of the whole program. You spend, or I spend, four days a week uh, at the restaurant. One day was school and then two days off, except in a season when we only had one day off. So five months out of of a year, four months out of a year, we only get a little bit less off. Uh, We did everything from butchering, Mm, small pigs uh, deer breaking down fishes um, halibut turbo you know you you name it we, we just have got it uh, and then of course the cooking part you learn it all
0: and it was it was a Swiss style of cuisine
1: yeah it's it's Swiss Swiss cuisine but of course the f- fundamentals are all based in French cuisine and so that's what we learned all the you know, the 16,000 different sauces and different cuts of potatoes and all the stuff that nobody cares about it today anymore. Although I wish they would a little bit uh, because it does give you a great foundation to for cooking. You know?
0: Were you really focused on moving in a direction of cooking at that time or was it more something that uh, was arranged?
1: No, we really never talked about different cuisines. It was just French cuisine that was around. And then, of course... In the 80s, we had Newell Cuisine, Mark Upierre. White, you know, we all worshipped him. His, you know, it was God, and we thought, wow, you know, cool guy, rock star. You know, what is he doing? And today, of course, you look at that stuff, and it's all very dated. Um, but that's what we try to do.
0: Were you really focused as a young man at that time on cooking, or more? I mean, what did someone take you under their wing, or was it more the situation you found yourself in?
1: Well, I found myself in a situation, uh, I always liked to cook or be around food when I grew up before you know, I went and started my apprenticeship. But the attitude was a little different at that time. For example, my entire family said, you know, you're never going to get hungry if you're a cook. So that was, and even my grandfather, great-grandfather, they all said, we're never going to get hungry if you're a cook. That was foremost on their mind. Uh, that's what they were concerned. And
0: because of poverty and people starve sometimes. In, oh, yeah. And, in reality.
1: Yeah. Uh, having a job was much more important than uh, being in love with your job. And uh, today, everybody talks about the passion. Um, that was not part of the conversation. That was not part of the vocabulary, passion, and loving what you do and and all that. Of course, looking back now... And I just mentioned Marco Pierre White. We weren't aware of that he was only able to do that groundbreaking reengineering of uh, old French cuisine without that passion. But it was never explained to us. Uh, passion came then later on when I worked under uh, Michael Romano at Union Square Cafe. That was the first time where I felt like, wow, this, this this guy loves what he's doing, and how can I soak that up, and how can I be part of that, because it is cool to love what you do. It's not just ends to, a means to an end. And
0: in the meantime, you you were working in other parts of Switzerland for a bit?
1: Yeah, I worked up in Arosa in the mountains, worked in Lausanne, French-speaking part, uh, for one and a half years, uh, but... A year before that, my dad passed away, so I missed home and I missed my friends and want to be back home again. So I worked in Zurich, Agnes Zamberg, which was a one-star Michelin uh, restaurant, very successful. That was the first time where I then got in contact with serious wine people. Sadly, I didn't take up the opportunity to pursue that. I didn't know what I had, but... That's when, I first time, I really realized that wow, there's, a, there's a, a wine world out there, and together with the food of Agne, Agne Sandberg, which was New cuisine, but with lots of local ingredients. Pretty much what we do today here in New York, trying to find you know the, the closest local ingredients um, instead of having you know something shipped in from South America in in December. However. I uh, worked in, um, in Zurich, and at that point, I figured, okay, I uh, had enough of this. I want to see something else. So I send out applications uh, and resumes to prominent restaurants and hotels, Hong Kong, Singapore, London. And I figured the first place that writes me back and sponsors a visa, that's where I'm going to go to. And sure enough, uh, it ended up being uh, a Swiss restaurant up in New Milford, Connecticut, you know. But um, the the owner of that restaurant sponsored me, got me a J1 visa, and off I went. And,
0: so it was your first time in America? Yeah. And w- what was that like? Did you like it, was it awesome. right away? Or yeah, it you- was
1: awesome. Um, we had you know, two days off, well, two and a half days off. I had my own car. Uh, Chevrolet Caprice diesel was awesome was the end of the big car area era I'm pretty happy I experienced that so I went up to Provincetown I went up to uh, Vermont went down in vacation during vacation time to Florida Texas Colorado and I'm back in three weeks with my then girlfriend it was fun I had a good time I did that for a year because the visa ran out, I went back to Switzerland and then pretty quickly decided that I wanted to come back because it was such a great experience. I loved this country and ended up in New York uh, at Union Square Coffee.
0: And and how was that working at that time? I mean, who was there with you besides Michael? Was there other people working on the line that later became?
1: Uh, one of the sous chefs, Jamie Leeds. She's now down in D.C., very successful. Has two three restaurants. Um, it was Claudia Fleming. She was in a pastry apartment. She still pursued dancing uh, at that time and was an assistant in a pastry apartment. Um, Of course, we all know her and she moved on. Uh, One of the best pastry chefs this city has seen at that level. And that's all I can think of. And what yeah, was it was a long time ago. Sure. Uh, and what uh, was Many of those people are actually are still at Union Square Cafe and are still part with, with uh, Danny Meyer. Of course, Paul Boltz-Bevan, who just retired. Uh, he was a server then, and various other front-of-the-house people who are still within the group. And
0: what was it like at that time? I mean, had Gramercy opened at that
1: point? No, Gramercy wasn't open yet. I think Gramercy was not even a dream then. Um uh, Unit Square Cafe was three years old at that point, and we'd just gotten three stars. Uh, So this
0: would have been about 88?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so.
0: And Danny was on the floor every day?
1: Danny was always around, yeah, sure.
0: And what did it feel like in terms of the interaction between front of the house and back of the house
1: at that time? It wasn't the classic interaction, which was them and us. Uh, back when I was in Switzerland, it was them and us, and we played constant rude tricks on the waiters, and it was a hierarchy. The waiters were just, you know, burned regard very highly. Uh, but at Union Square Cafe, it we were a team, we were front of the house team, back of the house team. We, we hung out together. We had a good time. Uh, of course, that was all initiated by Danny and Michael Romano. That, that we are a team and we, as a team we take care of the customers and not as them and us and we are better and you don't know what, you, what you're what doing and get the hell out of here. And what was the menu
0: like? Were there more Italian influences than you had been working with before?
1: Uh, oh, most definitely. Uh, Marco Romano traveled quite a bit. If I remember right back to Italy, Sardinia, he came back with pasta, Malaredo's, they're called they're like little maggot-looking, like Cito, city little thingies. Um, it was very much Italian, yeah. But in the New York style, like everything else is, you know, all tailored towards the New York clientele and their, their likes and dislikes.
0: And how did you how did you see that at the time? I mean, how did that uh, fit with your
1: own style? Well, I didn't have a style at that point, and it was... It was awesome to see that you can develop your own style like Michael did. And he worked uh, in Zurich as well. He worked at a restaurant called Shimax, which was a competitor of the restaurant I worked at, Agnes Amberg. Um, So he knew exactly where I came from and it was good. Uh, The first thing he had me do when I did my trail, he gave me, the bag of potatoes and he said okay turn those so make them into beautiful turned potatoes and I you know banged it out in 15-20 minutes this thing was done uh, and he said yeah that doesn't surprise me because he knew exactly where I came from and that's what he had to do I mean every single vegetable was turned and from the zucchini carrots you know everything was turned so pretty boring um, but yeah he hired me
0: and what was he like to work for?
1: Oh, he was awesome. He was a very really good guy. He still is a good guy. He never swore. And You know, I came from pretty brutal kitchens where clocks would fly through through the kitchen and uh, the forks were stuck in your bud just to move faster and you were verbally abused. Although we did have a good time, but just amongst us. Uh, the chefs were all alcoholics back there and working on the Michael it was, it was it was different because he was a serious chef. He had his own style. He never swore in the kitchen. Of course, he got upset when something didn't work, but uh, there was no verbal abuse. It was all you know, concentrating on the food and uh, pleasing the customer. That was the prime thing to do. And and he pro- he probably knew or he knows that if you upset the kitchen staff, then nothing comes out of him. You know, at Che Max where he worked there the chef there was was a screamer, was a yeller. And obviously, he didn't want to continue that and made a conscious effort to change that and in his own kitchen and treat everybody with respect. And and yeah.
0: And 88, so you got the three stars there. And what was the feeling like in the room and amongst the crew oh, like, at that time?
1: Oh, like today, and it was very joyous and we were happy. And you know, if, if I remember right, we went out for a beer and, of course, I didn't know the meaning then because it was my first New York City job. I said, "Wow, okay, New York Times three stars—that's awesome." But you know, once you open up your own restaurant, then it's pretty pretty quickly it sinks in what the meaning of uh, of a star or two or three is, and you know, all the money that you invested and all that. So,
0: and also it was fairly in a in a unbuilt-up neighborhood at that time. I mean, Union Square wasn't known for restaurant so much at that
1: time. Yeah, that's what I wasn't aware of that. You know, I, I had a hard time finding Union Square. you did when oh, you yeah. first came? Oh yeah, absolutely. I left out in Astoria. Um I don't quite recall how that all came together. But uh yeah, you know, it was a babe in the woods, so
0: did you have any, like, weird encounters, like going to work one day and stepping no, over no, dudes no. or anything? No,
1: <laughs> If <laughs> but, If so, it's not sticking in my memory.
0: Body outlines in the street? No? Yeah, no. no. Uh, so then you, you uh, moved to a different restaurant group.
1: Uh, after New York, well, after Union Square Cafe, I uh, was married at the time, uh, we figured we want to move, and uh, we moved to Seattle. So worked for Weston Hotel. That lasted about a year. I missed the East Coast and also wanted to be closer to Switzerland, because, you know, flying six hours and flying another nine hours. Um, but on the way back from Seattle to New York, we stopped over in uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, spent there one and a half years being a ski bum and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Came back to New York and worked for. Stephen Thalia Lafredo at Zoe for four years as a sous chef under Stephen Levine. And that was quite a culture shock, you know, uh, because that was the free rolling 90s. And we, I mean, Stephen Levine, he pretty much put anything on a plate uh, that was sexy, crazy, cool at that time wontons, sesame seeds with gnocchi and knishes, and house-cured salmon and it was was really wild.
0: Uh, Yeah. And they were doing a lot of seasonal ingredients too.
1: Uh, Yeah, we did. But uh, I think the focus was more on being uh, innovative and creative and I think it was it was the time when Mainstream American cooks started to discover Asian ingredients, you know. So they were all going completely crazy with that stuff. Something you wouldn't find today anymore. Uh, but we had a good time, and Stephen Levine—he—he he was quite a creative person. I don't know how he ever came up with all that stuff, but uh, he was a good chef in that regards. Um, and we were, f- and we flanked him as sous chefs. That's what sh- sous chefs should do. Um, protect the chef. You know, you, you figure out what the chef is good at. And he was very good in the creative part. And us sous chefs took care of the kitchen, uh, with the ordering scheduling, uh, and all that stuff. So, and this was, that, that was a great team. Soho in the, it was 90s. Soho in the, Soho in the 90s, uh, tumbleweeds rolling down the streets on Sunday afternoon. It wasn't what it is today. Uh, well, what is, but, uh, but we also, at the same time, would do incredible numbers, uh, 250 on a Saturday night, crazy brunches, just through the roof, very successful. Uh, so I did that for four years. And then and China opened, China. Sina, uh Well, once again, uh, traveled again. My wife and I uh, took a half a year off and went up to Alaska with our Bronco. Actually, before that, I uh, was a chef in two restaurants that went belly up which was the best experience I ever had on someone else's time. I don't wish this on on anybody, but uh, to go through the experience of having to worry about where to buy the produce and how to make payroll and explain it to your cooks and having dishwashers just walk off the line uh, because you didn't pay him, you couldn't pay him. That was an awesome experience because it laid the foundation for everything that I did then afterwards. Uh, treating the employees right and, and pay him, and try to make as much money as he can and try to make everybody else aware of that how important making money actually is. Not just because you have to pay rent, but also everybody else is involved here. Uh, that was good. Uh, the restaurant was called Stingray, 79th and... Uh, Amsterdam. Um, so that lasted a year or so and then my wife and I we said, okay, we had enough and we traveled up to Alaska, Va Bronco, and, uh, and back down to New Orleans and uh, back up to New York. And I started working again for Stephen Othalia Lafredo when they opened up Cena with Norman Laprice as the chef. Uh, he's very successful up in Montreal still a restaurant called Toki. Uh, awesome chef. One of the best chefs I worked for. Uh, creative, very, very in tune with produce. That was the first time I actually came in in contact with a chef or worked for a chef who was so produce-driven. Driven. And the produce up in in Montreal is just absolutely awesome. It's We have miles to go before we beat them. Uh, we had, f- I worked up there for, for a month or six weeks or so before we opened up Sina and we had different mushroom guys come by. We would go out to the farm and uh, look at uh, vegetables. They would come by uh, with all their goods, uh, venison farms or elk farms, uh, mushroom farms. So he showed me all that stuff, but uh, it's really awesome, awesome, awesome. And the seasons are, one would think that it's pretty cold up there, which I suspect it is, but the growing seasons, they really try to make the most out of it.
0: So you come and do cena, and okay. what was that experience like?
1: Uh, it was an extremely stressful experience. Uh, normal Lapris would come down from Montreal every three weeks. Prior to that, I would get uh, recipes and ingredients list and would have to have everything ready. Uh, he will come down right from the airport, right into the kitchen. We would start prepping. I try to get as much done as, uh, as possible while running. I was the chef de cuisine while running uh, the operation. So he will come down, uh, would we'll prep out everything. Then on day one, we will prep. Day two, we would start doing tastings for the owners. Day three, tweaking. Day four, implementing. Day five, explaining it to the staff. Day six, a little bit more fine tuning and day seven, he would be off again. And we did that 12 times every four weeks. Uh, It was really hard. Uh, Like I said, while at the same time, taking care of the front part, which was the cafe and the dining room and all the expectations. We got three stars. I don't recall who the reviewer was, but we got three stars from the New York Times right out of the box. It was pretty good. Uh, but somehow it didn't work out for the owners and we had to close after a year, which was extremely depressing. Uh, you know, at that point I cooked for uh, 25 years already and uh, it was pretty depressing. We were all down and when they sat me down and said, okay, you know, we cannot continue spend too much money or too many people asking for money, and they might pick up the ice machine tomorrow. I said, what God, you know, I'm going to go through that again. But they pulled the plug and sold the place. And at that point, I figured, okay, what else can I do besides cooking and going through that again? I knocked on the doors down at the Chelsea Weinwald and Chelsea Market. Uh, Started first as a part-time salesperson, Um, if you know me. Nobody wants to buy anything from me. Uh, They just don't trust me like I sell them some lemon or something. Um, But then um, somehow I talked them into making me the wine buyer. I don't know if that was the smartest move they ever did, but uh, that was the start of my wine buying career. And simultaneously, or shortly after that, I started to make the correlation between food and wine. And how it actually all fit together, uh, like sake and Japanese food, uh, Western food, French food, and wine. It just like sort of clicked. Uh, after having been a buyer for two years, I talked to my wife and started to roll in, uh, rope in investors and start looking for space. And ultimately, we find, found Treslantenth, 10th, uh, which at that point, that time, was still Chelsea Commons. A rundown neighborhood bar, pretty skanky place. Uh, I thought I could just fix it up, so make like a little, you know, gastro pop out of it, a uh, term that was still used then. Uh, but that didn't work out because everything we touched just fell apart. So
0: so originally the idea was that you and Juliet Pope, who is the wine director at Gramercy and also your wife, were going to open the restaurant together,
1: uh, mm, Trestle. And- yeah. How did that all really work out in reality? <laughs> it didn't work out that well. Uh, you know, while writing the business plan and uh, securing investment and all that, uh, I was in high hopes and didn't see it that she had not much of interest in joining me. Uh, which in hindsight, of course, is a smart thing. That's, women are very smart in that sort the of department. They sense when things don't go the way it's supposed to go. Or the way you wish it should go. Um, then she broke my heart and she pulled out and she said, no, I want to stay at Gramercy Tavern where her true love is. And uh, But she would support me whichever way uh, is, was necessary. Like I said, she broke my heart, but uh, uh, for a good, good thing. And I'm glad that she did. Uh, because I don't think we could work together um, too strong of characters and too much of opinions how things should be going. Uh, although I think we will be an awesome power team. And I do offer her once in a while, hey, if you ever want to open up your own restaurant, I run it for you. You're the boss, and I just do what you say, but she hasn't signed up yet. Uh, so I was on my own, for all the support, of course, and uh, it took us a long time to renovate Tresland 10th, Oh, what then became Tresland 10th. It's pretty much a lemon. Uh, we had to excavate downstairs, go... Two feet down into the ground, we found groundwater that was a living hell. Um, the ceiling in the dining room, When once we pulled that thing down, we found rotten, broken, split beams. Uh, part of the front was all rotten out and one of the apartments was about to fall on our heads. Uh, it was really a lot of work, but thanks to the investors uh, who were committed and... Showed their commitment by supporting us. Uh, they just shoveled more money into it, and we ended up with a fantastic, beautiful restaurant at uh, a great architect, Joseph Preney, who is more of a, a residential architect, and it shows. But great, great guy, and uh, pretty much worked pro bono because he was there day and night uh, helping me. to renovate that place,
0: and it seems like now that it's open, the neighborhood also supports it quite, quite oh, strongly. quite a bit,
1: yeah. The neighborhood and also people from far away. Um, we started off as a neighborhood restaurant and I think we grew somewhat out of that. We are always welcome. We always welcome, of course, neighborhood people. That's where we are. And But at the same time, we grew and we are much more successful than we ever were. Uh, the, the High Line helps, of course, and the galleries in conjunction, combining the two. Uh, we are busy. And
0: you were? did you open before the Highline really got going?
1: The Highline was perhaps a dream. Uh, at that point, we didn't know about it. We knew it was there, and we followed the story that uh, Giuliani... Then Was it Giuliani or Bloomberg? Bloomberg.
0: I think Bloomberg. Bloomberg, yeah. yeah. I was associated with David Bowie, because <laughs> <Like>, <laughs> I think he did a lot of community rallying.
1: Um, yeah, we just read in a paper that they secured the funds, and they bought it from... Uh, from the government for a buck, they still didn't know what to do. If they almost tore it down, and then uh, they secured funds to uh, renovate the High Line and started. We still at that point didn't know what it's going to be, but uh, it was a good thing, and it's a great thing for the neighborhood and Tenth Avenue, and uh, it's awesome.
0: And so people come from other neighborhoods to go on the High Line, which is an uh, elevated park, basically right. on the old railroad elevated
1: tracks um not just other neighborhoods also other countries i mean we have lots of foreign tourists here who come because of the galleries we have over 250 galleries in a neighborhood uh some of some of them world best the gosian for example and the highline which uh, between the two of them brings lots of people into the neighborhood Uh, when we renovated trestle seven years ago sunday afternoons saturday evening when nobody was on the street it's not not a place you were able to well wished to walk around um that all changed i mean it's now pretty buzzy you can get pretty lonely though on a snowy or cold rainy night it's still 10th avenue uh, but overall it's quite busier well every
0: time i go in there's always some gallery people hanging out there yeah, at the bar. I mean, you know, you can always tell the art gallery guys like a mile away because they have nice scarves, even in weather where <laughs> they don't need
1: scarves. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, they're they're quite supportive of Trestle and Tent, and of course, also the other restaurants, Red Cat, Patina. Um, they're quite supportive, and we love them, of course.
0: It's kind of like a restaurant row that that street.
1: Yeah. There's still lots of empty space in between. There's a gasoline station right across. And you not know, the further up in 10th Avenue, you go towards Hell's Kitchen, it becomes a little desolate. But that's also changing fairly quickly with new high rises, new buildings, and uh, more people, more baby strollers.
0: So, speaking about the neighborhood, what was the uh, aftermath of Hurricane Sandy like?
1: Uh, it's not really talked about that much. The, After Sandy, there there were people with much bigger problems than than we had, losing their homes to fire or floods or just devastation. Um, So our problems were pretty small in comparison. I think that the the galleries didn't want to up the story because there were so many people suffering, but it was pretty devastating. The many galleries, the ground level galleries, of course, uh, with basements full of art books and archives and... Uh, paperwork and all that stuff was all lost because those basements just filled up like bathtubs, and lots of art was lost. Some of them was able, some of them were able to renovate their art, um, but it, it did a number. And we, or I, was worried that the same thing would happen to Chelsea as did to Soho after 9-11 and Tribeca that is just desolate you know it's going to take a decade to to pick up again but that didn't happen There, I don't want to say it was touch and go but we really didn't know where we're at for a couple months after Sandy but pretty quickly after that we figured out hey nobody's talking about it and it's you know everybody's cleaning up everybody is uh, pulling through this with all the support that the galleries have and uh All the other restaurants pulled together and uh, just kept on marching on. And now it feels like it never happened. But uh, we're still dealing with the insurance. That's not easy. We had a trestle. We had two feet of water down in the basement, uh, which wasn't pretty water. It was pretty nasty water. It's not like, you know, beautiful, clean river water far from it. And uh, we had tremendous damage. Uh, all computers, micros, everything was gone, ovens, refrigeration. Of course, we had no electricity for for five days, four and a half, five days. So everything in a walk-in, um, all pickled things, pickled cherries, ramps, everything, everything, cheeses, everything. We, we must have filled up 20 black bags, if not more, of just produce out of the walk-in, and everything went in the garbage. It was a great opportunity to deep-clean the restaurant without a doubt. It took us two days, but uh, it wasn't necessary found it.
0: And you are the chef-owner, but you do do the wine. Yeah. And, and I always found it one of the more distinctive and interesting lists in New York. Well, thank uh, you. Certainly in Manhattan. And uh, what is your approach to a small uh, list that you have nonetheless made exciting?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Well, first of all, we... Right when Tresland 10th opened up, or before Tresland 10th opened up, I had to focus, find a focus for the wine list, and I decided to make it all cool climate Uh, wines around Switzerland, uh, so Germany, Austria, Italy, France, and then the the regions, Alto Adige, and and all that. Uh, And of course, Swiss wines, although they are pretty expensive, and uh, well, that's another story for another day. Uh, and, And also American wines from cooler climates. And uh, so that in itself already limits quite a bit of what I was able to buy and taste. But much more important for me when I put the wine list together and also what the way I still buy is I want to find a, a meaning in a wine. I want to find soul. I want to find emotions. Um, of course, that sounds all very hypothetical and, and little brainy, crazy, kooky talk. But it's important for me. Uh, I cannot deal or don't want to deal with a wine that doesn't have a soul, that doesn't have a story to tell. And usually, I get the stories by meeting the uh, the winemaker or whoever makes the wine, or the owner, or whatever. So if I see dirt underneath beneath their fingernails or calloused honest hands, then I know this is going to be an awesome wine. I might not like it stylistically, or perhaps it's a faulty wine, or what I perceive as a faulty wine. Uh, but at least I know that the hands who made that wine had good intentions and tried to do something honest. Um, that's the criteria that I like to buy wine with. Did
0: you find that that approach actually helped with just time management? Because you're like, you know what, I, I don't even need to try these wines because that's just not what I'm into. So oh, absolutely. I'm going to focus in on, on these that I'm going to spend my, the time that I have, because you are also the chef right? that you have a lot of things to do. Right. So it feels like you structured a list that you could also handle like in terms of time.
1: Yes. Yes. Once in a while I dream about a wine list that's twice as big, but then besides storage, it's like, you know, can I spend more time on a list? And um, the answer is, Yes, if you take me out of the kitchen or the operation, then I can spend more time on the wine list. And I think I find a good balance between the three, running the restaurant, being the owner, uh, taking care of my staff and the customers, of course, and the kitchen and many changes. Although I wish I could do more of those, but time seems to be running away or priorities uh, and dealing with the, the wine list. So I have, my, I have a full plate, but I have an awesome staff was really supportive from the dishwashers to to the cooks to the front of the house to the waiters management they all support me and Tres 10th to make uh, make it a successful restaurant best way they can. So when you
0: evaluate a wine, do you feel like that personal connection that you make with the grower or winemaker uh, can be tasted in a finished product?
1: Well it sounds a little goofy if I would say yes, but I th- I think that something comes through in the wine if the wine is made with with soul so i believe that the up and down of a of a winemaker you you can taste in a wine and like i said it sounds all a little goofy but uh, if a winemaker really has a splendid year and he's really happy with the grapes and he's happy with his life and he's happy with with the the, the oh. rainfall, and the sunshine, and everything that comes through in the wine. Uh, equally, if the winemaker goes through a, a dark patch of his wine of his life, then I think that you taste that as well. It Doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but that's where I think you 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 get character out of the wine, and it's not just manufactured, you know, sixty thousand gallon stainless steel container made wine but whenever you create something you you pass it on if it's now with food you give a little bit of yourself uh, if you write a, a script for a movie if you write a book if you create i use that term create food loosely because everything has been done already at least once but if you come up with new food new combinations if you make wine you give a little bit of yourself. You you shed a part of your soul. Um, that can be very rewarding. That can also be extremely hurtful because you give. Okay? If nothing comes back, it's, it's hurtful. If you're getting trashed, it's hurtful. Uh, same thing for a winemaker. They they give something.
0: And are there wines that were a little bit lesser known uh, when you were putting them on the list and starting to work with them that have gotten a little bit uh, more traction, at least in, in your restaurant?
1: Yes, um, without a doubt, there are wines that are being sold now and you find on lists that weren't around or weren't thought after. You know, look at wines. You know, they were always great. Uh, Puffinay was already a great producer 15 years ago. Um, or Ganevad, you know, the, they used to come in and uh, the wines used to come in two phases of... Gunavat, and now you have eight different ganavats come in, or eight different faces, and uh, unobtainable. You cannot buy them anymore unless you're a rich restaurant or have rich clientele. Uh, so, yeah, a few years ago, nobody talked about those, and uh, today they are successful and they're hip wines.
0: Do you think your time as a buyer at the wine shop gave you a point of view for developing your own list?
1: Without a doubt. Uh, if I never have to sell another bottle of ruf Clicquot, I'm going to be happy. Uh, of course, there's a market for that, and the people love it, but uh, I'm not enamored by it. Uh, and it gave me a, a foundation uh, to figure out what I like and what I don't like, and what I would like to support, which is a very important point. Uh, and, and other wines that don't need my support, they don't need my help, uh, and... Having just said that, I think that's another aspect of my wine list. I think there are wines that need to be drunk, need to be heard, and the story that needs to be told uh, through through wines uh, that we'd like to, to, to support.
0: And have you found that placing uh, a certain format of list has helped? get that message across sometimes. I feel like you've used little symbols and things to indicate <laughs> <laughs> to your customers what they might Yeah,
1: be in we for. have, Now, um, well, first of all, we, we have a star system for uh, sweeter wines or perceived sweetness, so ma- mainly Rieslings, and some sweeter uh, Shura wines where it's one to three, one being fairly dry and three being cloyingly sweet, which we don't have. And then we have another symbol, which are which is uh, uh, skull and crossbones. And that's more a warning and also help for the waiters, but a warning for, for the customers that, A, if you have to ask what it means, there's a little description, which means all traditional wines, and we can debate what all that means. But uh, if your customer and sort of have to ask what it means, then... Then with our help, we can guide you through the wine and we can explain you what it means. But there's a good chance you're not gonna like the wine right off the bat because they might be a little oxidized, they might be a little orange, they might be uh, just a little funky. Uh, it might be a Sancerre wine. Uh, so yeah, you, you know, tread with caution here. Uh, but we're more than happy to to help you along.
0: Have you found that that scroll and crossbones has actually increased interest in a certain consumer? Like people are like, whoa, they say other people can't handle it. Give me some.
1: Uh, I don't think so. I think it scares people off, which that doesn't sound like a selling technique here. But if it scares people off, then at least they're not going to have a bad experience with their wine. Uh, For example, Sauvignon Blanc are right above... Sauvignon, above uh, Sauvignon, okay? And we had in the past, before we put the skull and crossbone on, that people would choose Sauvignon because it's right next to Sauvignon Blanc. Then, of course, they would be very much disappointed. Today, the wine has a skull and crossbone. And, uh, and, and they're sort of like a little warned. They don't send it back. They're not send it back. And they don't think that we serve bad wine uh, and we don't know what we're doing which, you know, it's debatable, of course, but uh, at least you've been warned that this is a little bit out of the extraordinary.
0: And you carry those wines because you feel that, one, you like them, and two, they go well with your food.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's uh, uh, Another philosophy is uh, a point to look at is if, if you com- compare the, the the food of a region with the wine of the same region, they always go together, okay? It just works out. You can't go wrong. So in Jura, there's a reason why they have these wines, the high acid, uh, zippy, vervy, electricity wine, uh, because the food is a little heavier. It gets pretty cold in the winter. uh, So there's a reason for that. And uh, uh, you find that throughout the regions, yeah.
0: And how has the style of what you're making in terms of food clarified over the years that you've run the restaurant? Has it changed a little bit or have you, has your perspective Well,
1: changed? it always has to evolve in every restaurant. Every cuisine needs to evolve uh, with customer demand. So like I said, we have lots of gallery goers. We have lots of what we call luncheon ladies. Uh, they probably will not deal very well with uh, a blood sausage at, at lunch. Okay, so it's just not gonna fly. Uh, but perhaps we can do it in, in January, in the deep of winter, what we call Metskete, we announce that and we sell it. It's fantastic. So we always have to evolve with the customers and we have to evolve ourselves and, and grow.
0: Because you have done dinners around a certain kind of food, like you've sent out emails in advance and said, hey, we're going to do a special kind of traditional food menu. For right, especially
1: specialty, uh, specialty, uh, the Metskete which we do every January, second week. In the dead of winter, we try to utilize pigs and uh, do the most of it, which is a very traditional thing in Switzerland. So we serve, uh, it's almost like a chukru garni, but very Swiss with blood sausage, liver sausage, uh, broadwurst, sauerkraut, mashed potato. Roast the pig ears, pork belly, and it all comes on one giant platter, uh, something that you only can do once a year and you should, you know, you don't want to have it every night for dinner. It would be big as a house. But, you but that's
0: something that people used to eat. Something with necks too, right? Oh, we a, have duck necks on, duck yeah. Duck necks, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, They're confit and breaded and fried in a pan and served with a rosemary aioli. And
0: not too long ago, you opened up another restaurant nearby called Rocket Pig.
1: Which... He, it's, a, it's a sandwich takeout job. It's very successful. Got lots of positive reviews and uh, opinions. And that's a, pro- that's a great project and uh, might be a project that we going to pursue and see what we can do with it because uh, I think we, we have something there.
0: How did that get started?
1: Uh, by pure chance, right across the garden of Tressland 10th, there was a, a dilapidated old building, an old horse stable or cow stable or something like that. And the landlord decided to tear it down and rebuild it and offered us the space. We didn't know what to do with the space. We just knew we want to have it. Uh, and it's too small for a bar, too small for a private dining room. We don't need more seats. The kitchen is already too small for what we have almost. Uh, so I figured, well, let's make it a takeout shop, And then sort of like distilled from there uh, one sandwich, which became then the rocket pig sandwich.
0: And how did you decide on pig?
1: Well, I grew up with pigs. I mean, no. <laughs> Uh, I grew up eating pig. that's pretty much all you eat in Switzerland. We had maybe once a year my family was able to afford beef roast uh, or veal uh, very seldom We just you know, we didn't we weren't able to, to afford that. Uh, my dad was a game warden, so we had lots of game but besides that it was all pig. Uh, so I grew up with uh, slaughtering pigs. We had a pig every year. That was broken down. The pig would come like Saturday morning. It would come to a quick end. Would bolt through the brain and uh, then scalded. So to scratch off the bristles, uh, hung up and gutted, and uh, the blood would like go through blood sausages. And then hung up and uh, gutted and uh, put into uh, cut into different prime cuts, and then made into sausage and bacon and all sort of stuff. Uh, in the olden days. But at my age, I think there's already an old age. Uh, There was a guy which is a traveling butcher. He would go from farmhouse to farmhouse and break down pigs and manufacture the pigs. Uh, And uh, then at the the end of the day, he would leave and the whole pig would be in pieces and in freezer and in sausages and all that. So that would happen at least once a year or twice a year. And sometimes we would uh, share the pig with other uh, neighbors. Because, you know, I moved away then, so the pig would be too much for just my mom, my dad.
0: I feel like through ups and downs, you've managed to achieve what your family wanted for you, which was to never go hungry.
1: (laughs) I guess, yes. Uh, It's absolutely true, but uh, didn't foresee, you know, what it all means to be a cook. Because that's what you start off with, and it's a a very hard job. Uh, I don't envy any of my line cooks. It's it's brutal behind the stove, you know, day in day out, twelve hours, thirteen hours. Other restaurants even more. Five days a week, you walk around like a zombie. You're pasty white. You drink too much, smoke too much when we still smoked, and uh, just do it, do it every day, every day, every day. You have one day off or two days off. And it's grueling. Um, nobody told you that. Nobody told you that you're not going to have any friends except your your fellow cooks. Uh, nobody told you that you don't have a life, uh, so it's it's hard, but it's also rewarding. And making customers happy, and now at my stage, owning a restaurant, owning Rocket Pig, and being in the wine world, uh, it's very rewarding. I'm very grateful for everything that happened to me, and continue happen to me and others as well.
0: Ralph Kuzel of Trustle on Tenth and Rocket Pig, thank you very much for being. You're here You're welcome.
1: Today. Thanks for having me. It cheers. Talking with you.